This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Now, for those of you who are just now joining us, we are completing, as I've said a few times now, our series on the storyline of Scripture. And we started off by saying that the story of the Bible is a theodrama. Theo from the Greek word God and drama from the Greek word to do. And so that is to say the Bible, the revealed word of God as we have it, is a story, it is a word about what God is doing in the world. It is not an anthrodrama. Man is not at the center of God's story, but God is. And we, as image bearers, play a crucial role as supporting actors in what God is doing in the world. And we said that this story of redemption can be broken up into four chapters, right? That's a way to say it, or four parts, and we said those are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Four other words we use for that is that things ought to be a certain way, and they were created in an oughtness. And then in the fall, there is an isness. There's a brokenness to the world. But in God's work in Jesus, there is redemption. The world can be a certain way. And in the, wor- the world to come that we just heard about, the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem being brought down, that is the way things will be. And so there is an ought, an is, and a can, and a will. And we said that, interestingly enough, most of us have been exposed primarily to the second and the third chapter. We've been told and we've been living in a two-chapter story, not a four-chapter story, a story that says, I'm a sinner, Jesus is a savior. I'm a sinner, Jesus is a savior. And those are integral chapters, right? You, you cannot remove these chapters or the story is not true. But that's not a comprehensive story, right? We don't know what we were created for, what we fell from. We also don't know where we are going, which is what we're gonna talk about today. 
But the four-chapter story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is a comprehensive story. And there are many comprehensive stories that we have around us that would ask us to participate in them. Stories of false hope, stories of materialism, stories of idolatry, stories of building up our own kingdom, stories of more, 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 success, 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 money, power. And these stories try to tell a comprehensive story and they try to get you to live in a comprehensive story. And we understand that we have the comprehensive story in Jesus. Now we also know naturally that the reason the final chapter matters is because you don't really understand the story until you know how it ends. Right? I mean, you, you gotta know where it's going, right? We are future-oriented people. Whatever we have in our minds as a picture or an image or a vision of what is to come, that is how we orient our lives now. One of my favorite examples of this recently is an article I read about Michael Phelps, right, just after the Olympics. And I had known some of this, uh, but he had the same coach from the time he first began competing through all of his Olympics. And of course, his coach uh, understood that Michael Phelps is just a freak specimen of a swimmer, right? He's just a freak. And he knew that, but he also knew that there were other very talented, strong swimmers. And so he knew that in order to tap in to Michael's natural giftedness, he had to train something better than other swimmers. And that was his mind. That was not just his mind, but the eye of his mind. What he, the vision he had of winning, of swimming, of racing. And so what he would do is he would tell Michael, I want you to create tapes of the race. I want you to taste the water in your mouth. I want you to feel what it's like when you made your turn too quickly and you need to slow down. I want you to imagine what it feels like to know that you're behind your desired pace and you need to speed up without burning out. Then he would have him take off his goggles and swim without the goggles. And he'd have, he would have him replay those tapes in his mind. And as Michael Phelps is training, he'd walk along the pool and he would yell, put in the tapes, take off the goggles, put in the tapes, take off the goggles. And as he's swimming, he would rip the goggles off and he would play this race in his mind because he knew that his vision of winning, in this case, would orient the rest of his life. He knew that this vision of winning would orient his training. It would take it to another level. It would orient his discipline. It would orient the way he would sleep and view the value of it, the way he would view and value nutrition, right? It or, he oriented his entire life because of this vivid image of what was happening. Now, we know what this is like, right? I mean, if any of us played any type of sport, we, we're not Michael Phelps, right? Nobody is, actually. Nobody in the history of the Olympics is Michael Phelps. But we... All of us have experienced some type of competition. Do you think all of the YouTube uh, speeches of coaches in the locker room that we see that this would be something that would be worthy of forwarding on? If a coach came in and gave this vague idea of what the plan was, he just sort of came in and said, so we're gonna go out there and uh, whoever wants to play, that's great. And uh, we'll just have fun and we'll do our best. And all right, let's go, right? This vague idea. No, that's not a good coach. A good coach comes in and gives a very vivid picture of the game plan, gives a very vivid picture of what's gonna happen, who's doing what, when it's gonna happen. He paints this picture that orients everyone around the game plan. 
or a financial advisor. Can you imagine a good financial advisor if he or she would come in and sit down with you and say, okay, so I wanna know what your values are and we wanna plan your money so that you can give a lot and you can be prepared for retirement and all these things. So first we need to talk about this. When do you plan on retiring? What if your answer was, I don't know, sometime in the future. Just this vague idea that it might be a good idea sometime to prepare that you might not work for money. A good financial advisor is gonna say, uh, that's actually not gonna cut it, right? What, what we need is we need a number and we need to work there because once you have that, once you know that, it orients everything else in your life. It orients how much you save, how much you give, how much you spend. It puts limits on you. But really in putting limits on you, it sets you free because you know the end, you know the game plan. But the problem is that most of us live our lives satisfied with a vague feeling, a vagueness about the future. Oh yeah, uh, I kind of know I'm part of this thing called redemptive history in Christ and I kind of know that Jesus is gonna come back and all of that. But what, what kind of orientation is that giving you if you just have a vague feeling? I would imagine not a very strong one. I'd imagine maybe a little haphazard orientation lacking maybe purpose or drive or vision. You see, in this final chapter of restoration and in this text, we understand that the future is so sure that we in Christ as God's people know exactly what we have to look forward to. We know what story we are a part of. We know where the story is going. And so it is in that vivid picture to orient our entire lives. Every part of our lives is to be oriented under what God is doing and will do in Jesus Christ. And so pictures matter. And what I wanna do today is look at two pictures that are in this text. It's important to know that oftentimes we think redemption and restoration are completely separate. Like redemption's happening now, restoration will happen in the future. But actually, we see, as theologians say, and we see in the Bible, that there's an already not yet connection to chapters three and four. You see, in Jesus, the future is actually broken into the present. And we're gonna talk about that. There's an already reality to both of these pictures, and there's a not yet reality to both of these pictures. So with that, first, first we see a picture of newness, right? Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then in verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So first, there is obviously a not yet to this newness, right? All things, all things are not completely new yet, are they? I mean, that would be lying. That would be telling a false story, okay? Not all things are new. So first, let's talk about the not yet of newness. What does he mean, though, by newness? Have you ever thought about that? What does he mean by newness? Does he, does he mean uh, that God will annihilate the entire creation and create a new one? like a completely new creation, new substance, new everything. Now, to be sure, there are traditions that have taught this, 
that God will annihilate the creation and he will, again, out of nothingness, create a new one. And this one will be the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. But it doesn't seem to make sense. That, that doesn't seem to make sense with the storyline of the Bible or even the texts that are often cited to support this view, okay? So just relatively quickly, one of the main passages to describe newness in the new heavens and the new earth as completely new, annihilated, and then recreated would be 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter certainly uses really vivid language, okay? He says in that chapter that this world will be destroyed, it will melt, it will be burned, and it will be laid bare. So at first reading, that seems pretty clear, right? But I'm suggesting to you that the Bible teaches that this imagery should carry the idea of smelting and purification. For those of you who were with us through 1 Peter, do you remember in 1 Peter when Peter talked about how one of the ways sanctification works in us as we become newer and newer is that we go through the fiery trials of temptation. And in these fiery trials, the, as the heat gets turned up, the impurities of our false faith get brought to the surface and burned away. And as this continues to happen, more and more impurities come to the surface and they get burned away until in time we are completely pure. Right? So when the Bible talks about fire, it has this purifying image to it. Okay, Not a destruction through fire, but a purification through fire. So the newness of the new heaven and the new earth is best understood in the sense of a radical cleansing, of a radical transformation, a radical purification. And this really conforms to the nature of newness in scripture, right? Think about this. When the Bible talks about us as new creations, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, that we have a new heart, that our hearts have been regenerated, right? It doesn't mean that we had open heart surgery and literally our heart was removed and a new heart was put in, right? But rather by the spirit, our hearts are being rebuilt, renewed, restored, reconciled, redeemed, and regenerated. It's the same heart, a new orientation, same heart, new loves, same heart, new direction, same heart, new power. So what we just read, the consummation of the kingdom of God is a fixing of the broken creation, a correction of the broken creation, a rehabilitation of God's first creation. To say that God would destroy everything and have to start over ultimately is to say that God's kingdom power is not greater than the destructive force of evil that he can't overcome evil and he has to start over. But God does not make junk and he doesn't junk what he's made. He restores it, he cleanses it, he purifies it. And in that sense, he's making all things new. That will happen, okay? That will happen. Everything will be made new. All sin, all tears, all brokenness, gone. And all things will be made new. Now, not everything is made new now. So what is the already of newness, right? There is an already to this reality. Those of us who are in Christ, who have faith in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, remember what the Bible says about us. It says we've been reborn now. So you see the final renewal of all things started in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
James tells us that if you're in Christ, you are the first fruits that God's renewing power has entered in. The future is breaking into the present. Yes, it looks like a mustard seed, but it grows. And it comes in and it comes into believers and it's planted in us. And we then, our renewal in Jesus cannot be separated from the future renewal of all creation. We cannot separate our present regeneration from the cosmic regeneration of all things because our present regeneration is the first stage in the restoration of all creation. Can you believe that? That you in Jesus Christ are the first fruits of God's new creation? That Jesus, who is the first fruit, who comes and lives the perfect life on our behalf, dies the sacrificial death, raises, is put into the tomb. Sorry, I actually actually died and was put in the tomb first. So that happened. And then after that, he was raised from the dead. Ushering in this recreation power. And that's happening in us right now. This is how Paul says it. I remember this verse. It's very sweet to me. Um, when I was in college, beginning of my sophomore year, I had a man walk into my dorm room starting a ministry on campus. I've shared this story before. I, I, every advantage I get, I, or every, uh, sorry, I've, I'm a, uh, have not had a lot of sleep. Uh, every time I get the opportunity to tell the story, I take it. And this is an opportunity because 2 Corinthians 5.17 is such a beautiful reality of what I'm talking about. I wasn't a Christian. I thought I was a Christian. A man came in my dorm room, asked me if I was a Christian. I said yes. And as we're talking, he sees a Bible on my shelf and he takes it off and he opens it and he says, can I read something to you? And I said, sure. And so he turns to 2 Corinthians 5, which I had never read before. And he gets to verse 17 and it says, if any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and there's newness, right? Behold, new things have come. And he kept reading, I'm sure, to get to the great exchange in verse 21 and all of that. But I had checked out by then. Because when he said that, I knew that had never happened to me. So at the end, I say to him, I'm not a Christian. He said, well, I thought you said you were. I said, well, right there, verse 17, if that's what a Christian is, that's never happened to me. I've never experienced newness like that. I am not a new creation. The old things have not passed away. The new things have not come. So I would stop now and ask you this. Well, let me just say it this way. Christianity is a spectacular hope. But it's a horrible hobby. It's a horrible hobby. And this is why, right? This is not cognitive behavioral psychology, which can have its place over there. But, but you see, the gospel is not merely content. It's power. It's not just words and formulas to get right and subscribe to. It's actually power. And so a hobby is what you do in your leisure time because you enjoy it, right? Like gardening. Christianity is not gardening. It's not running. It's not reading. It's power. That's what it is. And so... In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we see that the life of the already newness, the already newness is a life on this earth infused with incredible meaning as we've been called into the service of God. Christianity, walking with Jesus is not behavior modification. 
It's not falling in line behind certain ideas. It's actually power. This week I was reading a letter that Francis Schaeffer, who is a theologian, uh, apologist, pastor, lots of things. He had an awesome beard. Google him later. Francis Schaeffer has this book of letters that he wrote to people. He responded to every letter. And some of you have emails to me in my inbox from last week I still haven't responded to. And he hand wrote. I don't know how he did it. But in his letters, he frequently would say things like, I'm pretty convinced, summarizing, this is not a quote. He would say things like, I'm pretty convinced that if all the promises of the Holy Spirit and if all the promises of God answering prayer were removed from the Bible, most Christians in the West, would, their lives would not be changed at all. One of my professors ministered with him at Labrie for over 20 years. And he said that was actually something he would say almost before every time they prayed together daily is that we are going to pray like the promises of God are real. And that's what they would do. And so for us, Christianity is not a hobby. The newness of the new creation has started in us. It is power. So now we are called to seek the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. And we seek the kingdom in this present life. Right? It's far from a rejection of creation. Right? This present life Seeking the kingdom is a rejection of sin, not the rejection of creation. And so what that mean is, means is in the already of newness, we're sent back into life with a renewed vision, a renewed picture, a renewed orientation of what's happening because we know what's gonna happen and we know what is happening in us. And now we're called to a life of rejecting sin and a call to reflect God in his self-sacrificial love and redemptive concern to a sin-scarred world. We're called out into darkness as light on mission for him because we are part of the new creation. We are the already newness and God is working through us, broken jars, light coming through us into the world. So that's the first picture, the picture of newness. Some of it not yet, some of it already. And the last picture that I want to look at is the picture of nearness. Look in verses three and four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I remember the first time this verse uh, landed in my heart. This picture that God comes to us. And I had lived many, the first three years of my Christian life believing, believing the gospel. I was a Christian, but I lived my life as though Christianity was about me chasing God. That God was somehow standing back and I had to get just the right formula to say to him or behave just the right way to be with him. But then I remember reading this and saying that, wait a minute, the end is that God desires nearness. God wants to dwell in our midst. He wants his presence to, his glory, his presence to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's what's gonna happen. 
And I remember when I got this picture of this not yet nearness, right? It's not yet. God doesn't physically doesn't dwell among us in the way that he will. But I got this picture and it began to orient my life and I began to see God's heart in a new way. I began to see newness in a fresh way. It began to be attractive to me instead of a chore. I actually saw him and I wanted him and I knew that because he wanted me. In Jesus, he's pursuing you because he wants to know you. He wants to be with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. That's what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is a means to the end of communion, of being with one another, of enjoying one another. And so this not yet of newness tells us that God is coming to dwell on this cleansed, renewed earth. And that we as his people will be with him and we will be like him. We see here, at least I see in here, the point is not real estate, right? It's not merely the new earth. The point is the triune God. That's the point. I heard it said, uh, Michael Allen actually, he'll probably turn red when I say this. I read an article recently that he wrote and he reminds us of the reality that the main point here is not merely newness, but nearness. That that is the Christian hope, is nearness. And so the way I'm saying is it's not about real estate, right? A new earth, it's about God. That the earth, the new earth is the dwelling place of God and he is to be with man when all things will be in perfect harmony. All sad things will come untrue. Faith will give way to sight and all things will be made right. C.S. Lewis has this quote in The Great Divorce, chapter nine. He says, some mortals say of their temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this. He says, they say this not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. You see, the presence of God undoes, renews all things now, before we move on to the already of, of nearness, right? That's the not yet of nearness that we have to look forward to, that we orient our lives around. I do wanna pause and ask one question because I know that our vision of the future says a lot about our current vision of God. And so I wanna ask you this question. When you picture your hope, is Jesus at the center or is something else? When you imagine new heavens and new earth, which will happen, and you get your new resurrected body, and it's perfect, it will never die, you will be glorious. So much so that C.S. Lewis also has said something like, well, it doesn't matter what he said, does it? We'll just continue on with Revelation. <laughs> you will be glorious. When you see him, you will be like him. That will happen, all right? So those are all good things. But what do I look most forward to? What if I were glorious and perfect, never to be sick, all sad things untrue, no tears, no pain, no suffering, and no Jesus? 
would I be okay with no Jesus? Sometimes I would. Sometimes I would. But this vision that we've been given here to orient our lives around puts our anchor in the triune God. Jesus is our anchor. He is our hope. He is the one that makes all things new. He is the one that wipes away every tear. He is the one that makes all sad things come untrue. He is the one that recreates everything, that cleanses it, that renews it, that brings us into glory. You see, he is always the focus of faith and hope. That's what we have to look forward to. That is the not yet that we must orient our lives around, even in the midst of confusion and pain and suffering now. Now, we'll close with this. What about the already of nearness? There is an already to God's nearness in Jesus Christ. We can experience his nearness. In the incarnation of Jesus, we see that Jesus not only is the mediator of the new covenant, but he's also the mediator between heaven and earth. And heaven is where God reigns. Heaven is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We, we know that in heaven, all that God desires is done. His will is done. And we want to pray and see his will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth. He, Jesus had this phenomenal conversation with Nathaniel in John chapter one. He sees Nathaniel in a vision maybe or something under a tree. And when Nathaniel comes to meet him, he tells him, I saw you over there and I know, I know all about you. And Nathaniel's like, this is amazing. And Jesus says, well, if you think that's something special, I tell you this, that you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You see, it's as if a door has been opened and the powers of heaven are coming to earth in Christ. The blessings of heaven are opened up and made accessible to those who live in Christ under the new covenant. You see, God came near in Jesus and by faith, we are united to him now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, we now have access to the Father. We have communion with God. God wants us to be near him. So while our nearness is not yet what it will be because it will be almost unimaginable and we'll have to be glorified as I've heard so we don't explode because there's so much joy that we'll experience when we are brought into the new heavens and new earth and resurrected and God dwells among us. So there's not that yet, but there is this profound fellowship and nearness that we have with God in Jesus Christ. We have God's nearness now. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and this is the amazing blessing of Christianity that we have fellowship with the triune God now. And I'll close with this. If you don't have faith in Christ, right? If, if, if you've never hoped 
if your hope in the future has never been Jesus, it's always been anything except Jesus, or if you do have faith in Christ and you realize this morning that your hope is not in Jesus as you wished it was, the answer is the same. The way we draw near to God is to, in faith, offer nothing. To come and say, I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer. I am completely at your mercy. It is to place our trust in what Jesus has done. And no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, you still sin, okay? And I still sin. And we feel a separation of nearness. That's what we experience. But we have this promise that because of our union with Christ, in repentance, we draw near to him by, nothing, by giving nothing to him, by coming open-handed and receiving him once again. Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him. You received him by faith, you grow by faith, you draw near to him by faith, and faith is open hands. Faith is offering nothing except yourself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us, for your mercy. I ask now that um, you would show us those areas in our life where we don't hope in Jesus as we ought, where our hope might be security or prestige or fame. We have so many gifted, talented people in this church, and um, I'm thankful for them. And uh, every single one of us uh, is tempted to put our trust and faith in our own gifts, our own competence, uh, our own smarts, our own strategy, our own performance, our own record. And that is not where nearness is found now. Nearness is found by drawing to the throne through the cross. So we come to that cross now. We want to see your face. We want to experience your newness. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come illuminate our hearts and minds to the promises that are ours in Jesus. Amen.